The following is a recording from LTCCC's September webinar, The Hidden Profits Behind Nursing Home Care. For video and slides, head to nursinghome411.org slash webinars. Again, that's nursinghome411.org slash webinars. Enjoy. We have a special guest speaker today. His name is Dave Kingsley, and he is a researcher and educator specializing in healthcare policy and economics. His most recent publications have focused on finance, economics, and politics of both acute and long-term care. I would say, at least in my experience, especially in regard to nursing homes, that's how I first met Dave um, through some mutual friends colleagues and I became acquainted with his excellent work and asked him if he could present on some of the work that he's been doing. He has a terrific, um, uh, uh, not podcast, excuse me, blog. Um, uh, Dave, I don't remember exactly. It's Toll House Second, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you to say. But without further ado, I'm gonna hand it over to Dave. He's gonna to talk today about the hidden profits behind poor nursing home care. Oops. And... Sorry, I just got a chat that came up. Um, and I think that is it. So I'm gonna hand it over to Eric uh, for the slides. And Dave, if, I'm sorry, if you could just um, state the URL of your blog, which I did share via email, but I'm not remembering off the top of my head. It, exactly. It's on the last, uh, it's on the last oh, slide. Yeah. Great, thank you. So, and I'll talk a little bit about that as we go through this today. Are we ready? Yes. Thanks. Thank, well, I, I want to thank everyone for uh, joining us today on the webinar. I appreciate your interest in what we're going to talk about. And also, I want to thank Richard uh, for offering this webinar and, and the kind help I got from Haley and Eric in setting this up. Uh, what I would like to achieve today is an understanding of the industry's narrative based uh, of their narrative of what's happening uh, financially to them versus the reality, because they're two different things. Uh, the industry is engaged in a hardship plea. And by the way, it's a very well-funded uh, uh, lobby group. Uh, the uh, president of the American Healthcare Association, National Coalition of Assisted Living, is a former governor of Kansas who is paid $3 million a year, which is uh, six times what the Secretary of Health and Human Services makes. He has a $30 million budget or revenue per year. So they have some very sophisticated PR propaganda. And what their uh, mantra is, their narrative, so to speak, and their political strategy is to say, look, we're not making much money. Uh, we're, we're running on a thin net, a thin margin. Uh, I run into this occasionally at hearings, not occasionally, almost every hearing. If, it, if we talk about scandals, we talk about neglect, we talk about abuse, quality of care, the industry's response to that is, if you just pay us more money, we'll do a better job. So I want to move on to the next slide here and uh, talk about, uh, can we can we go, go to the next slide? Here we go. Uh, you know, what, what I am about today is debunking uh, this low net income loss argument. I just got the latest issue of Provider Magazine, which is a slick publication that uh, the AHC puts out. 
and they claimed that they, uh, they lost uh, $37 billion uh, in uh, funding that they needed for PPE and so forth, when in fact, they really haven't lost any money. Uh, my colleague, Charlene Harrington, and I have just published an article on the publicly listed corporations, and they did rather well in 2020 compared to 2019 and 2018. Uh, so I'll be talking about that uh, as we go through today. But they, you know, they're, they're going to say we can't afford to do better because we have a low profit margin. I'm going to talk about profits and margins uh, net income and uh, about COVID. I looked a lot at the at their press releases, and by the way, uh, the uh, AHCA is not the only lobby group that we're dealing with here. Uh, we're dealing also with Argentum. Uh, we're dealing with the real estate finance industry because basically this is a real estate industry. Real estate trumps medical care, as I will discuss, and finance trumps real estate. Uh, the real money that's made in this business is from trading real estate uh, and moving uh, properties around and back and forth. So as we go through this today, what I hope we can take away is that this is a narrative. It's based on misinformation. And we need to uh, have the facts, the data, objective data to develop our own narrative as advocates and be able to debunk what the industry is putting out. And that's important because as long as they can hide behind the argument of we're not making any money, we're not going to be able to uh, change the system that needs to be changed. So what I'm saying is finance, real estate, is a big part of this. And if we don't look at that and we don't understand how the capital flows and the capital markets intersect with this business, then we're not gonna really be able to deal with the lobbyists who are pushing for ever increasing uh, reimbursement and, and ever decreasing regulation. Uh, the uh, AHCA has a, uh, their, uh, funds are, are very large and they give a lot of money to Congress. So what, what you're looking at here is a building. And I, I, and I think most people who uh, think about a nursing home, think about a place, it's a building, it's got people inside, uh, it's got nurses, it's got quality. Uh, we've all had some experience with nursing homes. This particular facility is located in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, Riverbend Post-Acute and Rehabilitation. Uh, it, it's owned by uh, the, what I consider to be the biggest uh, long-term care skilled nursing company in the United States, which is the Ensign Group. Uh, it became the poster child in Kansas City during the early stages of the COVID scourge because they had about 30 really quick deaths due to COVID in this facility. So the Kansas City Star picked it up uh, I was contacted by a local television station. They were doing a story on it and they did about two minutes and I got about 10 seconds, I think, in the story and then they moved on. 
But a lot of uh, people here, you hear that, gee, the big, the big corporation in this business, the giant is Genesis. Truth of the matter is Genesis is a kind of a mere shadow of its former self. It's, it's practically out of business. They only own 10 facilities. Whereas the uh, Ensign Group, uh, they own 100 facilities and manage another 130. So they're, they have about 230 facilities in 13 states. They're growing rapidly. They're acquiring property. They are masters at financial engineering. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, they're acquiring property uh, and they are selling property. Uh, in about 2000, this industry went through a sea change. Uh, because private equity research, we had a resurgence of private equity, and we also had the real estate investment trust enter the business, and things haven't been the same since. We don't really pay a lot of attention to the real estate investment trust, but I will be talking about how REITs, we call them REITs, relate to this. So let's look at how the uh, Ensign Group structures its uh, companies, it, every facility is structured exactly like Riverbend. So this is a little different view of Riverbend because this is a view of how the capital flows through the uh, business. You can see at the bottom box, Medicare and Medicaid flows in to the operator, which holds a license, an LLC that's incorporated, by the way, in the state of Nevada, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Big Blue has a license. And I cobbled this together from looking at Nursing Home Compare, uh, although their uh, data on who owns what and how the hierarchy of ownership works, I do my best to kind of pull their data together. If you look at the box to the left, it says Little Blue Holdings, that's the real estate. I look up the address uh, on uh, the, the city database or the county database and see who owns it. Uh, uh, how it's incorporated. Then I look up the corporation in the state Secretary of State's database. Uh, to the right, you see ancillary services. Oftentimes they will have several LLCs set up to provide medical transport, pharmaceuticals, and so forth. I don't think they have any uh, at the uh, Ensign Group or at the Riverbend facility. In the middle, you see a box that says Endura Health. That's what we call a shell company. Uh, a shell company doesn't own any property. They don't have any employees. They have an address. So let's talk about how these, the capital is flowing. Uh, we're, they're paying a, a lease to Little Blue Holdings. Their, uh, their earnings, their net is going through Endura Health. And, and shell companies are set up to avoid taxes, to hide money, to avoid liability. Uh, and by the way, uh, the Ensign Group has 400 wholly owned subsidiaries where there are 230 or so facilities that they operate. Uh, the, all 400 of those facilities are incorporated in Nevada. The reason for that is Nevada has changed its laws over the past two decades to make it a very favorable place to go and incorporate to avoid taxes and to hide money. It's kind of becoming the Cayman Islands of the United States. So uh, financial engineering, and I, I wanted to just quickly illustrate how the Ensign Group, uh, it was founded by Roy Christensen, who is a pioneer in the nursing home business 
Uh, he founded Beverly Enterprises in 1963, left it in 73, started teaching at uh, uh, Brigham Young University, but he kept investing in nursing homes. And by 1999, he had uh, major uh, shares in several chains. And he cobbled those together like Covenant Care uh, and Flagstone into the Ensign Group. So the Ensign Group was founded in 99. And in 2007, they issued an IPO at about four or $5 a share. Uh, by the way, it's selling at about 80. It's trading about 80, maybe a little lower. The last few days haven't been good in the, on the NASDAQ and the stock exchange. But anyway, what they did is something I've not seen anywhere else in the nursing home business. They spun off a lot of their property into a separate corporation. A spinoff is carried out to avoid taxes for tax advantages. And what happens, though their property, a lot of their property was spun off into a real estate investment trust that they incorporated. And that uh, real estate investment trust is now a, uh, a public company too, because they issued an IPO. The advantage to the shareholders is they get stock in the new company, but they don't lose any stock in the old company. So it's like creating stock out of nothing, basically. And it also, by moving property over there, trading property at the propitious time is good for cash flow. And I'll talk a little bit more about debt financing of property and why this property is moving around. And real estate investment trusts brought a lot of access to capital. And it's kind of become a stable trading system now for trading and passing real estate around. Now, they spun off, uh, they, they created another spinoff in 2016 called the Pennant Group, which they spun off all their assisted living property into Pennant Group. And again, they got the uh, stock in Pennant Group, but then kept all the stock they had in the Ensign Group. So the shareholders do really well with these kinds of spinoffs. It's a way of making money out of money. Uh, and uh, I, I do want to stress that the real estate investment trust has become a major focal point of the real estate movement as it moves from one company to another. What you're looking at here is Brighton Gardens in uh, Prairie Village, Kansas. Again, you'll see a building. It's a nice building. It's in a fairly nice neighborhood. It's got a big park behind it. Uh, Brighton Gardens has both assisted living and uh, skilled nursing. I don't think it's a CCRC, but CCRC stands for Continuing Care Retirement Community. Uh, some of these facilities will have independent living, assisted living, and in-skilled nursing and long-term care. This has a license for long-term care and skilled nursing. Uh, so they are uh, operators of, uh, of a nursing home, so to speak. Uh, the reason I wanted to uh, talk about this facility, because it's owned by a REIT, and it's also operated by a REIT. Initially, real estate investment trusts only lease property. And, and a real estate investment trust, by the way, has some tax advantages because they don't pay uh, corporate taxes. Uh, they distribute 90% of their uh, earnings uh, to shareholders who then pay capital gains taxes. So as a corporation, it has some advantages. Plus, a, a real estate investment trust allows for a individual to buy stock. So the average ordinary American can be an investor in a real estate trust. Uh, they were legislated into existence in 1960 and for the first time 
in American history, uh, uh, Joe and Mary American could be owners of his trust, where before trusts were only open to very wealthy individuals. <clears throat> uh, that may or may not be the case. Uh, you can buy stock in uh, real estate investment trusts. Uh, you, you know, you uh, American Tower, for instance, is a real estate investment trust in cell towers. You have Simon Property Group, which is in malls and uh, retail, uh, brick and mortar retail. So you have different sectors in the real estate investment trust business. Uh, the healthcare uh, REITs are all involved uh, 100% in nursing homes. That's their primary as a sector. And one of the biggest real estate investment trusts is Welltower. Uh, and they're uh, solely in the uh, in the nursing home business or in senior housing, excuse me. So Brighton Gardens is uh, set up as a REIT, but this is a REIT that that's been able through tax codes to actually not only lease property, but actually operate the facility. And I don't want to get too deep into that because it's a very complicated issue with tax codes. But again, uh, I cobbled this together uh, by pulling data from CMS and checking the uh, uh, county database in the county this building is located in to see who owned the property, uh, looking in the Secretary of State's uh, database to see who set up the LLC. And at the top, you see Health Peak REIT, which is you'll see again as I go through this, is one of the biggest REITs in the uh, senior housing and the nursing home business. Uh, they're located in Ohio. So every one of these LLCs you see set up here has an address when you check with the, uh, who on the incorporation documents at the Secretary of State, or you check in the, in the county property database, is the same address as the healthcare or as Health Peak REIT located in Ohio. And again, uh, I want to stress that uh, we really need to begin to talk about real estate investment trust. And I will reiterate the point that I made earlier that this industry, although it provides medical care, I, I actually call it industrial medicine because it's it's more industrialized than it is care based on the model that's set up, uh, the total institution, the highly efficient uh, um, uh, minor hospital, the way it operates. Uh, that has not changed, by the way, since 1950, when federal dollars could initially be used to pay nursing home providers. And uh, of course, it, uh, we then had a precursor to Medicaid, which is about 75% of the funding for uh, nursing homes. Uh, in uh, 1965, we did get Medicaid and Medicare. So if you take Medicaid and Medicare, that's about 90% of the funding that these uh, corporations uh, are where they're receiving their revenue. So this property is, uh, the, the value of this property is based on its revenue that it can produce. Uh, so let's look at who owns, who are the shareholders. We talk about shareholders, and I just clipped out a piece of the uh, proxy statement. Uh, this happens to be the health peak, by the way, proxy statement. 
And uh, what I really would like to begin to let the public know is the biggest owners of nursing homes, the, the big nursing homes, the uh, chains are institutional investors. Uh, in this case, uh, if you look at a proxy statement that's filed with the SEC, you will, you will see the beneficial owners. Any entity that owns more than 5% of the stock of a corporation is considered a beneficial owner. So this particular uh, health peak is owned about uh, 40%, over 40% by four uh, institutional investors. So they have a huge amount of power and there's probably four or five other institutional investors that don't own as much. Uh, Brookdale, which is one of the big senior housing companies, uh, they have eight beneficial owners listed that own 65% uh, of the company. So what that means is that if there is a buyout offer, let's say uh, Carlisle Group uh, comes along and says, we want to buy out uh, uh, a Peak corporation or they want to buy out Brookdale, they have uh, they they have to deal with only about eight or so, and if they make a good enough offer, these institutional investors can vote to uh, accept that offer. Uh, the institutional investors also have uh, a lot of power over the executives uh, and the management, and they do interact. By the way, so the ownership in the nursing home business is very concentrated. And uh, these institutional investors are in individuals. Uh, I'm not talking now about the closely held uh, private corporations. These are public corporations. And uh, who are the, where are the institutional investors uh, deriving their uh, clients, their uh, pension funds, their, uh, their Entities uh, like sovereign wealth funds, uh, insurance funds, and so forth. But let's let's look at some of the financial metrics that are really important. When we talk about net, we talk about uh, earnings, and so forth. Uh, what I'm go only going to cover today is one of the three consolidated financial statements that we should be seeing from all corporations. If they're public, we can see these because they're listed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. But the income statement is where we look at net and we see revenue, we can see depreciation, interest and taxes, and we can see net. EBITDA doesn't show up there, but that's very relevant. And I'm gonna be discussing EBITDA. And what I'm gonna say is when the industry says net, I want to hear the, uh, the uh, advocates say EBITDA. I wanna hear the advocacy begin to push back. Uh, in the article that Charlene and I published, we show what EBITDA is, is because that's far more important than net. Uh, Amazon had a, a net, let's say in 2014, of minus 179 million, but because they had so much depreciation, uh, they actually had a, a, uh, a profit that year, an EBITDA of about $400 million. So depreciation is a, is a non-cash expense. It is a. It, it is not really being treated uh, in the. It's being treated as an expense for the for calculating net income, 
but it really isn't an expense. In fact, depreciation is making money for the provider because they're getting a tax reduction for their depreciation. And because property is debt financed, in the early stages of the uh, payment on that debt, the depreciation return actually exceeds the payment on the principal. At some point, the depreciation uh, earnings due to tax write-offs are going to be less than the principal. And that incentivizes these corporations then to flip the property, to move it into a REIT or to sell it. <clears throat> this, is, this may look a little daunting, but I'm just gonna look at a couple things on an income statement. This is the Ensign Group's actual income statement for 2020. So if you look up, you can see their total revenue was, was about $2.4 billion in 2020. Uh, you can see that they have depreciation of about $55, billion, or, uh, $55 million. So that uh, depreciation is, is shown as an expense. Therefore, their net, by when you look at their net of 171 million at the bottom, the net income of 171 million, uh, there, uh, that's that's about seven percent, which really isn't bad at all, even even by uh, expensing depreciation. But if you add depreciation, interest, taxes, and other uh, items on the uh, expense uh, statement or on the income statement, the EBITDA is going to be about two hundred and ninety million dollars. So that is uh, really uh, adding to the cash flow of this corporation. And that's a really important concept. And the industry is not going to talk about uh, cash flow, uh, the uh, balance sheet and the cash on the balance sheet. We're going to look at that in a minute. But those are the important metrics that we need to be uh, really talking about. Uh, if you look at the article that Charlie and I wrote, we, uh, we show net, we show uh, EBITDA uh, for three years for all of the corporations that are listed that are public corporations. I will be blogging about this. So if, if it's a little much, and it's a little overwhelming, don't worry about that. I'm going to be blogging over the next few months about all the pieces of this. Uh, the main thing is to take the overview and the big uh, ideas from this and not get too bogged down in the nitty gritty of corporate finance. Uh, we cannot avoid that because uh, corporate finance and financial services is a big part of this industry. Uh, as uh, I said before, we, we can look at the revenue uh, of 2.4 billion. We see a net of 171.4. This is the stuff I've been over. Uh, 9.4% uh, uh, EBITDA is, is not bad. You know, <clears throat> I was at a hearing and uh, one of the lobbyists got up and waved around a report uh, from somewhere, I didn't know where it was from, and said, look, we only have a median net income in the industry of one half percent. I didn't know where that data came from. I checked it out. It comes from a, a, a accounting firm called Clifton Larson and Allen, one of the big accounting firms, they put out a propaganda report for the industry every year. 
they cobble that together from cost reports that are filed and uh, a half percent net uh, may or may not be meaningful for a corporation. Brookdale has had as much as minus uh, net of minus $300 million in a year, but still added cash, uh, a great amount of cash uh, on their balance sheet. So don't pay much attention to uh, uh, when they start throwing net around. Also, the industry, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the press releases they were putting out uh, in, uh, in the spring was that the industry was going to lose $97 billion uh, due to COVID. However, uh, these companies were all well reimbursed for PPE. They were able to uh, take, uh, participate in the CARES uh, Act monies. Uh, they, uh, they, get, they were able to defer their uh, social security uh, payments. And Ensign Group noted, in fact, uh, I think it was $50 million on their cash flow statement due to the deferment of their, of their taxes for social security. That was a really big deal. So pay, uh, take what the industry is saying regarding losses due to COVID with a grain of salt, because they really haven't provided uh, much and uh, any, in fact, uh, uh, supporting evidence, any verifiable data that would substantiate what they're saying. Uh, this is basically just the difference in revenue uh, for the industry, the publicly listed companies between 2019 and 2020. I, and if you look down those, uh, you look at the revenue for, uh, from 2020 to, uh, I mean, 2019 to 2020, you can see that most of these companies either did better or stayed about the same. Brookdale's revenue dropped uh, in 2020, uh, but that really didn't affect uh, their uh, cash. Their liquidity was, uh, according to their 10K, they had no liquidity problems during 20, uh, 2020. Uh, well Tower, which is really the big kahuna, this is really the big company these days, and they swing a lot of weight. If you wonder where uh, all that property went that uh, was picked up by... Um, uh, that, that Carlisle sold off the $6 billion worth of property that belonged to HCR Manor Care when they uh, were bought out by Carlisle Group. Welltower now has it. And Welltower has just formed a joint venture with ProMedica uh, to operate facilities. Uh, and as I understand it, they are actually uh, looking at opening facilities in China. Uh, Welltower also operates in... Uh, England uh, and perhaps other countries. So we have a little bit of uh, globalization beginning to take place in this business, but you can see that most of the public companies are REITs. They've been able to get the tax codes changed over the years to move more and more into the actual operations. So typically they have a, a, a net, what they call their net side where they lease property, uh, they are beginning to provide mortgage uh, assistance, uh, providing capital to other companies to buy nursing homes. Uh, and then they have what they call their operating side. 
Uh, and what I was showing you at Brighton Gardens is Health Peak's operating site. And, and you can see that Health Peak is uh, 1.6 billion, not the biggest. Ventus is uh, one of the biggest. It's, uh, by the way, I noticed that when I looked at uh, Brookdale's uh, beneficial owners, ben, uh, uh, Ventus owns about 8% of the stock in uh, uh, Brookdale. So this is becoming kind of an integrated uh, property uh, uh, exchange kind of an operation. And I think we need to begin to think of it that way. Think of real estate, think of property, and then think of the financial maneuvering, lobbying for tax advantages in Washington. Those are all significant. Uh, what, what we're doing here is just uh, looking at uh, EBITDA and cash on hand. This is from the article that Charlene and I published. And you can see Brookdale, uh, they had a, you know, which is really interesting. They showed a negative EBITDA in uh, 2018, uh, jumped way up in 2019 and 2020, it was, it came down some. But then when you look at Diversicare, which by the way, has just been bought out by a guy named Epron Lahasky, they're public. Uh, Lahasky will probably take them private. There's been some uh, concern because of the uh, reputation of Lahasky. Uh, it, he's the front for a group of investors. And, you know, Diversicare was really kind of on its last leg before COVID. And one of the interesting things that happened during COVID, uh, their, their shares, uh, they were listed on the NASDAQ, but their shares and their uh, total market capitalization had fallen so low that they were delisted and were trading over the counter. But uh, during uh, 2020, their market cap went, started going back up, their revenues went back up, their EBITDA improved, their cash improved. Uh, and if you look at the Ensign Group, they had a great year in 2020. In fact, 2020 was a banner year. So this, what this kind of data does is it totally debunks the uh, industry mantra, which we're hearing right now. In fact, they just got a, another shot of, of uh, monies from HHS for COVID. And uh, because they're claiming that the, the Medicaid uh, reimbursements just aren't adequate. And we, we, don't we don't have any solid evidence whatsoever to substantiate the industry's claims. So, uh, one of the things I want to point out is uh, as we moved into 2020 uh, and we've gone through, uh, by that time, a couple of decades of changing corporate uh, management theory and, and corporate cultures uh, to financialization. Uh, but but uh, high net worth individuals have two problems. Uh, really wealthy people have two problems. One is inflation and the other is taxes. And one way they can deal with that is to move their uh, wealth into trust. And when you look at, uh, uh, and there's two kinds of trusts that we're talking about, it's real estate investment trusts, and I've already uh, talked about them, but there's family trusts and individual trust. And the state of South Dakota, by the way, changed their laws in the 80s and 90s to make it very uh, beneficial for uh, very wealthy people to set up trust, family trust, in uh, South Dakota. 
and to maintain their wealth in perpetuity. In other words, they can pass their wealth from generation to generation. This is creating a huge problem in our economic system because we're beginning to see such a male distribution of wealth. But let me give you an example uh, of how family trusts are used. If you look at the Pruitt healthcare system, which is owned by the Pruitt family, it's a closely held company. But when you look at who owns those facilities, you start looking at their facilities, they own 100 around Georgia, uh, South Carolina, and that area of the country. Every facility is owned by a trust, either a, either a family trust or a Pruitt individual. So they have, all of their ownership is in that trust. And I run into this uh, repeatedly when I start looking at ownership uh, of facilities. And the purpose of that is that they're able to, to maintain their, their uh, wealth from generation to generation, and they're able to avoid a lot of the taxes on capital gains and so forth. So you'll see irrevoc irrevocable in individual trust and so forth. Uh, and speaking of trust, uh, what this is, I think our last slide here uh, before I conclude, is when we start looking at the idea that uh, the companies made no money in 2020, you can look at what, their, what they paid their CEOs. These are just CEOs. It doesn't have the other board members and the other uh, executives. But, uh, you know, HealthPeak, uh, you know, CEO made $11 million. Uh, it went up from 9 million to 11 million. You look at Brook, uh, Brookdale, uh, Lucinda Bear made seven million. Uh, you know, when you look at the HHS secretary making five hundred thousand uh, dollars, but really, that—that uh, that is, it's you—you you have to ask how we can justify this kind of executive compensation. And let me say that a lot of this compensation is in the form of stock awards, uh, and a lot of those stock awards are are awarded into either an individual or a family trust. So uh, I look at the, uh, say, Christopher Christensen, who is the chairman of the board of the Ensign Group. Uh, the stock that he shows up right now when I check on the Securities and Exchange Commission, he has about $120 million worth of Ensign Group stock. All of that stock is either in a shell company he set up or it's in one of his family trusts or in an individual trust. And that's pretty typical when you start looking at, at, uh, at executive compensation uh, for this, for not just this industry, it's throughout uh, the uh, public corporate corporations. So uh, one, I think the one thing that should jump off the page, if you go down to the last two rows, that's Welltower. Uh, Welltower had an executive leave in October, and then they had a new executive uh, CEO take over in, in October. Uh, and together, those two CEOs made $20 million, over $20 million. Uh, you know, uh, we, we need to publicize uh, the, uh, this extraordinary level of executive compensation. So uh, I've, I've talked pretty fast and throwing a lot of information at you. So let's just conclude by saying that I think the advocates need, and this is what I've been trying to, to impress the audience with today, is 
We need to base a narrative on objective, valid financial information. We also need to pressure uh, CMS and we need to pressure legislators to open up and, and pull down the veil of secrecy on the publicly held companies. I think California has some legislation now uh, where they have to provide, uh, even the publicly, publicly held corporations have to provide a uh, consolidated financial statements, an income statement, a uh, balance sheet, and a cash flow statement. And so today has been just kind of an overview of debunking and looking at the reality versus the narrative. Uh, I hope that's what we can take away. I will be blogging about this. Uh, this was the beginning of sort of a series of blog posts. Uh, you'll find my blog, you can see it there uh, at tallgrasseconomics.org. We're basically dedicated to the finance, economics and politics of aging. Uh, you know, we talk about social security, uh, Medicare, uh, what, what is the political economy around those particular uh, public programs and uh, what does privatization do? Uh, as a capitalist, I'm somewhat uh, ashamed of what we call capitalism sometimes. What we have in the nursing home industry is more uh, state-financed uh, capitalism. It's a, a corporatocracy, so to speak. It's not a free market system because the market's restricted. Prices are set and controlled uh, to the advantage of the industry and wages are allowed to float. So we have price control and yet we have no wage control. So wages are, are suppressed. And uh, I really appreciate any attention uh, that uh, you have paid to this today. And I would really welcome your comments, contact me. Uh, I thought I had put my email here. It's just dkingsley at tallgrasseconomics.org. Uh, and uh, if you go to my blog, you'll see my uh, CR, um, <clears throat> our emails. And uh, I welcome your comments. Dave, thanks so much. That was incredibly in informative and, uh, and valuable. I'm just going to share my screen and we will, uh, if I can find the screen I was looking for, there we go, PowerPoint, okay. Um, so before we open up to Q&A, just wanna mention our next um, program is going to be in October. We always, pretty much always the third October of the month at 1 p.m. Eastern. And that program is going to be on informing the Nursing Home Reform Act. And presenting will be Meryl Grenadier, excuse me. She is an attorney with the AARP Foundation um, Litigation. And they do a lot of really excellent legal work in regard to um, improving care and um, preventing abuse and neglect in both nursing homes and assisted living. Uh, I also want to mention that we are having our 12th annual reception on November 9th. It's going to be held virtually. It's going to be, I can't say who the lineup is yet. I'm waiting to get approval, but I think it's going to be really tremendous. Um, so I hope you'll all join us again. That's November 9th um, from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern. For more information, visit nursinghome411.org forward slash reception dash 12. Thanks. And now I'm going to open up for Q&A. 
Um, as always, we we do provide um, uh, we do provide credit. Excuse me for long-term care ombudsmen who have attended the program. There's a quick survey. This credit, by the way, is only if your ombudsman supervisor has um, allows for the credit. If uh, you're an ombudsman or supervisor, um, you are welcome to reach out to us and let us know if you'd like to be included in this, and then we can um, uh, we can include your your program in providing credit to volunteers. And without further ado, we do have a number of questions for Dave. The first one is: um, Would you speak to the buying spree with groups like Puerto Piccolo, and how? are they able to continue buying properties when they are shown to provide such low quality of care and are being sued for failure to meet federal minimum staffing laws? Oh, I, I think that's a great question. First of all, uh, the one thing about our economic system right now is uh, there's a glut of capital. It's very cheap. We, we kept interest rates very low. So about anybody can come along and get a loan and, uh, we, what we have are states that are not really vetting uh, very well uh, when they're uh, awarding licenses. Uh, if Ephraim Lahasky gets his hands on Diversicare, uh, if, they, if they pass uh, his uh, Diversicare licenses on to him, uh, that's a problem. So all I can say is capital's cheap, loans are easy, uh, and vetting is not very uh, comprehensive. Thanks, Dave. We did a study actually um, in 2019 that reviewed state policies for how they vet uh, nursing homes for, um, you know, for potential buyers of nursing homes, which is a big issue, as, as Dave has been saying all along. And of course, has been an issue long, uh, a longstanding issue, excuse me, for us as well. Um, just very quickly, we do go to find that on our website, nursinghome411.org. We looked at what is available in writing and on paper, which could be useful for advocating. But as with everything else, it all comes down to the extent to which it's impl implemented. Um, the laws can be good, but if they're not implemented, they're not meaningful. Uh, thanks, Marla, for that question. Our next question is from Daniel David. And it is, if nursing homes are essentially fiscal vehicles, what are the levers to improve care quality? I think it's a, that's a great question. I think that's a challenge facing us. I think the first step is that we uh, begin to uh, hit the uh, legislators with reality, the kind of thing I was displaying today. Keep in mind that the total institution approach to nursing home care started in 1950. There's been no research and development monies. There's been no real uh, transformation in how care is provided because it's the most efficient way to, to, for the corporations to extract money uh, by keeping the, the system the way it is. So we need to bring ARP, the Great Panthers, uh, all of us. Oh, we lost your, your, your audio, Dave. We need to bring all of these, uh, all of these advocacy groups together and develop a narrative. And this is something I've been speaking about for years. I've been writing memos. We have no narrative and we have no political strategy. What's happening in the political process is we're playing rope-a-dope with the industry. We've been playing rope-a-dope with the industry since 1950. Uh, they, they 
uh, have no shame. So the scandals, the abuse, the neglect, the hearings, uh, they're just going to come into those hearings. The investors, the uh, Vanguard Group, the uh, BlackRock, uh, all of these institutional investors are, uh, they, don't, they don't have to face the music because they have the lobbyists that are going to go to the hearing and the lobbyist is going to go to the hearing. And we have to begin to push back on, on their argument of a low net or their argument of we're not receiving enough money. And we also have to push for more transparency. That's a really big deal. Thanks, Steve. And I would say, you know, there's some bills on the Hill now. There's been, as you mentioned, um, uh, bills on the state level here and there um, to improve transparency. Uh, and I think that is a, um, that is a huge issue. Um, the next question is from Elon Caspi, and he said, extremely important information. Thank you. Are you aware of similar investigative work in the assisted living sector? I'm not. Uh, I think we need that. Uh, Many of the companies that I have uh, put up are uh, involved in both assisted living and, and skilled nursing. We get, we, we are a little more, I'm more specialized in skilled nursing and long-term care, but are beginning to look harder at the assisted living. And by the way, the AHCA uh, just changed its name from AHCA to AHCA, AHCA to AHCA NCAL. National Center for Assisted Living. And, and it's a great point. I think we need to do the same thing. But keep in mind, those corporations you were looking at, they're involved in assisted living also. Health Peak, Well Tower, Brookdale. The only one that isn't, uh, or the only ones that weren't, were Ensign Group and Diversicare. Thanks, Steve. Before we move on, I just actually have a quick question relating to the question before this last one. Do you have any pointers in terms of how to, how someone who's advocating with their state legislator or their member of Congress or Senator about overcoming the, the um, industry's argument that they're operating on razor thin margins or they're, you know, they're losing money? Well, I, I think we've proved otherwise with our, uh, with, and I, and I notice I'm seeing uh, things pop up and say people need talking points. I'm happy to put ah. that out and I'm happy to develop those on my blog and I will be doing that. Uh, and, and they're absolutely correct. Uh, we need to go to these hearings armed and we do have all the information we need on the public corporations. And, and I will provide that, we have provided that. Uh, and the, the slides you saw today are on my blog and I will reiterate that on my blog and use those and then say, look, we have this kind of information for public corporations. Why would a privately held corporation be any different? How could Preston Brooks become a billionaire with Life Care Centers of America if he wasn't making a lot of money? Thanks, so, Steve. That's great. And we're going to post the PowerPoint on our website as well, along, along with the recording of this program. Um, Kathy Encino asks, Thank you for your invaluable information. Some providers are advocating for the elimination of the certificate of need CON process. Would you comment on the implications of its potential elimination? Thanks in advance, Kathy Encino. Oh, that, that would be very interesting. That would change the structure of the whole industry. Uh, I doubt if that's gonna happen. Uh, you know, in the healthcare business, 
or the healthcare industry segment of our of our government is they tried to avoid having a huge competition and i'm not sure if that's a good thing i mean if you have a privatized system why isn't there competition uh it would definitely open up but one thing i want to say about that is let's say you have someone can set up shop and there's already a licensed operator but they can get a license and go in and 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 uh and provide competition. Yeah, that would probably really improve care. Uh, you know, like the auto industry has to compete when they uh, make a better car, then Toyota has to make a better car than Ford and so forth. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to segue a little bit. There's a there's a, a scurrilous corporation owned by a private equity firm called the Place for Mom. Uh, this is one thing that uh, private does, they're a referral service. We are not regulating those referral services. So they can refer a, a patient to a nursing home, but they get reimbursed three months of Medicaid for that referral. So they're not all that particular. Uh, so I think it would be kind of become a, uh, we'd have to regulate that pretty closely to make sure it wouldn't be a Wild West kind of situation. Although it's not all that great now because we're not really regulating very well. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Eric Carlson asked, what information sources do you use? Are cost reports and or PECOS data accessible and or useful? Uh, yeah, I, I use the, uh, the uh, data that on ownership is, is slightly useful. I mean, that's how I cobble together the ownership uh, stuff that you can download from CMS. Uh, the cost reports aren't very helpful because they really don't, you know, they, they show you expenses that they, and, and California is about the only place I can find very good access to cost reports, not the, not what CMS has, because they've outsourced that to uh, a contractor and they have a, the most a, uh, antiquated system that you can imagine. Uh, and they're not very helpful. So I don't find that very helpful. Uh, the public companies, we get that from the Securities and Exchange Commission. You can use their Edgar database. You go on their Edgar database and you look up filings by corporations. And there's a whole lot of information, uh, both in the 10Ks, which is their annual reports, the quarterly reports, and the proxy statements. The proxy statements where you're going to find the CEO pay and the beneficial ownership information. Interesting. I've used um, 990s, but just for uh, obviously for the nonprofits. Um, thank you. Uh, Marla Carter, uh, I think she just had a comment. Thanks for asking. I'm in Kentucky. My loved one's Genesis facilities was bought by Porter Piccolo. Um, uh, but Serena Nicola asks, what about hospital-owned nursing homes? They are always crying poverty as well. Is there any truth in what they are experiencing? It's hard to say. You know, the the we have in the state that I'm most familiar with, we have uh, several hospital-owned nursing homes. They're trying to dump them. Uh, they, they're either good or bad. You know, we have some community hospitals that own nursing homes in rural areas that are very good, comparatively speaking. And then we have some that are very bad. Um, so, it, it, you know, if you look at that, you'll see a range of quality. 
Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Roxanne Montgomery asked, are lawmakers, Medicare officials ignorant of this false presentation of thin margins, or do they think, sorry, they just, do they think, <laughs> so, you know, people are asking more questions, and I think we're probably just going to take a couple more questions. Sorry about that. But, um, uh, sorry. Okay. Are lawmakers, Medicare officials ignorant of this false presentation of quote unquote thin margins, or do they think consumers, constituents are not aware? I think it is a second. I think consumers in general, um, in general, in a crisis situation, advocates need to reach out and educate constituents as well as officials. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a great question. I really don't think legislators are very uh, knowledgeable about finance and real estate as it relates to this business. Also, I think the staff, particularly at the federal level, uh, they are the individuals we need to really educate about real estate investment trusts. The, the interesting thing to me is uh, real estate investment trusts get little attention anywhere from anyone. And they really become a dominant force in this industry. And they are going to even become more dominant as we go through time. So uh, I think we need to do a lot of educating of the legislators, the public, the media. Uh, I talk to a lot of media people uh, and they're puzzling over real estate investment trusts. They can't see how they even relate to the whole issue. Thanks, Dave. I'm going to do two more questions, one of which I'm going to combine. Um, uh, Barbara Stuck had mentioned about the um, some of the, the nomenclature being above her, her level of understanding. And Imelda Mora said, what if some of us gathered via Zoom to have a brief course on the financial con concepts, REIT, EBITDA, um, or whatever, to give us that competency in talking? Who could we ask to help us with this? Well, I think that's great. Uh, I think we should do some mini courses on, on how financial statements work, on how corporations uh, function financially and what real estate means in this business. I'd be happy to help with that. Thanks. Um, thanks very much. Well, um, that's something that we'll explore too. Thank you, Melda, for, um, for mentioning that. I mean, maybe we could do even something that's like five or 10 minute things that are recorded if, if you're willing to do that. Um, the um, last question that I'm going to include, I'm sorry we don't have time to get to everyone because we're at two o'clock already, is the, um, it was from an anonymous attendee, states have adopted new medical loss ratio laws to require a certain percent of nursing home revenue to be reinvested in care and in front-facing staffing. From this presentation, it looks like there will be lots of ways for these corporations to hide financials slash skirt the law. Will this be a problem and how to promote transparency to ensure the, ensure, excuse me, the laws are followed? You know, that's, uh, that with the last question, this question is really great. I've, I've recommended for years that advocacy groups need to begin more, become connected to CPAs and attorneys who really understand corporate uh, finance and law. I think we really need to seek those people out. I go sit down with my CPA and I go over what I'm doing with her. And she's got a lot of experience in, in how, we how we value companies. And, you know, uh, this, is, this is, I think what we've done in the last two or three questions is begin to look, how do we begin to strategize? How do we begin to develop the, the training and education that we can use to rebut the industry? Because it's an asymmetrical uh, arrangement right now. The industry is really 
uh, uh, controlling the narrative. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. And thanks again so much for, for such an informative program. Thank you, everyone who joined us. And we will hopefully see you next month. And um, and, oh, and Dave, if you just want to say the name again, oh, oh, actually, Haley posted your email address, which is dkingsley at tallgrasseconomics.org. Thanks for offering that. And of course, um, tallgrasseconomics.org is his um, where his blog posts are, and they're, they're really good and helpful and help bring this down into smaller bites uh, as well. And, and, and one quick thing, anybody call me, uh, anybody email anytime, anytime, I'm available. Okay. <laughs> you may be sorry you said that. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. This is what I do. This is what I Thank do all day, every day. So it's just get in touch with me if I can be of help. Thanks so much, Dave. Uh, really appreciate it. Great program. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, right Richard. Bye-bye.